0: All right, I'm not going to forget. Kids can go, oh, they already stood up this time. Man. Every other time I forget, and they sit so patiently for the first 20 minutes. Yes, Dustin. That is your, yes, we're going to pass the plates. We said we would, so we better. While they're doing that, just let me, let me ask you a couple of questions here. And this is rhetorical. You don't need to put your hand up. But just to kind of identify for me, it's been a week, one of those weeks. And whether this week has been one of those for you too, or whether last week or the week before, the week before that, we all have these, these unique, challenging weeks where things go wrong, where things go uncertain. And ah, uh, and, uh, this morning, this text in Daniel 6, you can flip there already, but this text is the perfect reminder to us of the whole theme of Daniel, which we've said over and over and over, is the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. That even when we're facing disappointment and frustration and hurt and anger and loss and grief and all of these things, and we can think, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. Why would you? This doesn't make any sense. is we come back to the truth that God is in control, that God has purpose and meaning in every moment of our lives. And I'm preaching that to myself more than anybody else this week, but I trust that we all go through, well, I shouldn't say I trust, Uh, unfortunately, we all go through times of difficulty and and pain. And in those moments, I think it's all the more important to read stories like we're going to read this morning. This is Daniel in the lion's den. This is very familiar to many of you, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. This is like one of those stories that we really, really focused on, uh, even though there's some pretty rough stuff at the end of the chapter, and we just kind of ignored that, I think, in Sunday school, because it was a little rough. But, um, but if you don't know this story, then, then that's okay, because we're going to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of history, and we're going to read this chapter in its entirety. I would probably like to spend two weeks here, but the, the break is perfect, because today, after, you know, Lord willing... After we're done delivering our soul food, as our family's beginning our trip to Africa to take Smonga back to the homeland trip so he can experience his culture. We can show my parents where Smonga was born, and, and it's just super, super exciting uh, for us. And so we're gone two Sundays, and then we have a missionary coming, and then it's Easter Sunday already. And so if you read through Daniel, start to finish, you'll realize that at the end of chapter six, there's a massive change in tone. In direction, and actually in the chronology of everything too. And so we'll go back a few years going through chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And so we, I wanted to get through this without having to make a, a full one-month break, so we're going to probably skip a few things that that maybe you're going to go, man, I wish I wish you would have spent more time there. And the great news is that's what email is for, is if you want to talk about something, I mean, I will be gone in a different time zone, but when I get back... If you want to talk about something or you write a note down and go, man, you didn't, you didn't talk about this or you skipped over that or that. what you said there wasn't sufficient. Uh, I love those conversations, so please feel free to do that. Now, at the end of chapter 5 last week, we had this kind of pivotal moment in history. Up until this point, so Babylon has gone down and conquered the Jewish people. They're no longer in Jerusalem. Well, most of them are no longer in Jerusalem. They've been dragged off into exile. And so these first four chapters were about Nebuchadnezzar and his reign and his rule and how his kingdom was just huge. And he ruled with kind of that iron fist. He was a king filled with rage and fury and just as, as bad a dude as could be. But as the story goes on, we keep seeing that God is at work in his heart through specifically Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God is softening the king's heart and he's trying to show him that Yahweh is the one true God. And all these Babylonian gods are nothing. They have no power, they have no control. And even though you think you're in control because you went down and you conquered this nation, is that only happened because God allowed that to happen. And it actually says several times that we've read God had put Nebuchadnezzar in charge, in place to rule, but he was not ruling the way that God had called him to. So at the end of chapter 4, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and becomes like a wild animal, and for seven years he goes out and lives like an ox, eating grass, laying in the dew. And the whole point of this Daniel had prophesied to him was that until you humble yourself before God, you will not have your mind returned to you. And so in the end, it says he lifted up his eyes, and we read about this psalm of praise and thankfulness and and, and wonder and awe where Nebuchadnezzar seems to repent and say, you, Yahweh, are the one true God. He doesn't rule for very much longer, and then we learned about Belshazzar and how he uh, wasn't necessarily the king but the crown prince who Ruled For all intents and purposes, he was basically the king, even though his father, Nabonidus, ruled about 500 miles away, not in the palace. And Belshazzar refused to humble himself. He refused to see and to learn from the past mistakes of Nebuchadnezzar. And the challenge to us was, are we going to learn from what we see around us? This is the reason God has placed us in community, that we would learn from one another, that we would be challenged, that when we see someone going through something, that we would have the wisdom to understand how, how to learn from that situation. And then that we would encourage one another and lift one another up, and Belshazzar refused, and, and so ultimately God says, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. And that very night, the Medo-Persia army comes and conquers Babylon, they execute Belshazzar, and Darius the Mede takes over. Now, some of this wording is very important, and and this explanation before we even read chapter six is going to be a little bit lengthy, and I apologize, it's going to be a little bit like a history class, but I think it's really important that we think about these things because sometimes when we get to things that are like, man, this is a really difficult thing, it's really challenging, the historical context doesn't seem to line up, We, we can just kind of crumble And then when people ask us some of these questions, we don't know how to answer them, and we don't know how to deal with it, and it suddenly makes the authority of the Bible look maybe a little bit less trustworthy. But I promise you, as we get through this, we'll see that the Bible is completely trustworthy. So, Darius the Mede takes over. A new political empire has come. Um, However, in chapter 6, right, you see Darius set over the kingdom. But then at the very last verse, you see that it says, so this this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so the historical context of this is tricky because we know very clearly in the Bible through Ezra and Nehemiah that Cyrus was the one who allowed the Jewish people to go back into Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. That's very clear. That was a prophecy from Jeremiah, right? And we kind of remember um, that Jeremiah said to the Jewish exiles, go, go into exile and plant vineyards and build houses and marry and seek the welfare of your captors because in their welfare, you will find welfare. And so you have this kind of promises as to what's going to happen. And so it seems like the Jewish people near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, did very well. And then during Belshazzar's, there was, there was a lot of difficulty. And then now we're left to wonder kind of what's going to happen with this next empire. But if you read a little bit further in Jeremiah, you see that Cyrus will come and he will send the exiles back home. He will free them. and So we know that 100%. The confusion lies in this, who is Darius? There was never, as far as we know, a person named Darius who ruled the Persian Empire. And we said this last time in chapter 5. Do you remember that? There was never a king named Belshazzar. But his historical context has come clear. And and this is crazy because in the last 50 years, we've learned so much about the king Nabonidus and where he ruled and how King Belshazzar was actually the crown prince in his stead. My parents' generation did not know that historically. They had to go, "I, I think the Bible's true. I think it's right, but we're not really sure about this one piece of history. And through archaeological discoveries in our lifetime, we've seen this to be proven 100% accurate. And so we're going to lean on that a little bit here as well, because some of what we're going to talk about, uh, historians and scholars kind of argue about this, and there's two kind of basic views as who Darius was, but we don't know for certain, like we do now with Belshazzar. But the hope is that in another 50 years, in another 100 years, we'll uncover some information and we'll c- uncover some artifacts and some archaeological sites that show us that this is true. So, Darius, there's two, two ways to look at this. I'm going to try and be brief because I spent like two and a half hours trying to figure this out. Two widely held views in scholarship. Um, up until Tuesday afternoon, I held to the first one for my whole life. By about 1230, I changed my mind into the second view. And I don't think it matters which view you hold. Let me just clarify that. I just think the evidence is a little bit more compelling in the second view the further I studied it. The first view is simply this, is that Darius was a uh, Medo name given to the general of Cyrus who ruled on his stead. So very, very similar to Belshazzar. That's the first view. There's a lot of historical um, information that kind of really points in this direction. Uh, they, they lean on two things. Verse 1, where it says, it pleased Darius, Oh, pardon me, 31 of the previous chapter, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So that word received. He didn't conquer and then he is now over. It was given to him. That's the argument. And then in the end, of course, as I already mentioned, is it's in verse 28, it seems very clear that Darius and Cyrus were two different people. So on one perspective, and this is many scholars, not just Christian scholars, many historical scholars take this view that Darius was simply a general under Cyrus, and he only was there for about three, five years, something like that. So that's one. The other one, and I re- rejected this view for a long time, all through Bible college I rejected it. And then uh, we were supposed to take a seminary course on Ezekiel and Daniel. And so I did all the pre-work and then got COVID at Christmas and didn't get to go. But did all the work and that led me down this path in my mind that I couldn't kind of get out of. And I knew that we were coming there to chapter 6. So I've kind of been looking ahead and looking ahead. Here's the other view, is that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person. Seems weird, doesn't it? But actually, I think historically, that holds the greatest amount of uh, Accuracy. The Medo-Persian Empire are these two groups of people that came together. They, they didn't rule individually. They were one kind of entity, but they were two different groups of people. And so you have the, the Medo name for Cyrus, according to linguists, would be Darius. And actually, as we read through Daniel in the coming months, we're going to see that some of the, the successors were actually referred to as Darius 1, Darius 2, II, Darius 3, even though they had names as well. And so it sounds a little bit confusing, especially when we get to kind of 8, 9, 10 and the chronology gets flipped and we go back a little bit and then they're talking about Darius and then they go ahead and then they're talking about Darius 3 and you're kind of like, who's what's going on here? And this was not an uncommon thing according to Medo-Persian h- historians. The other thing um, that I want to mention about that, I've got to find this now. So I don't want to get this wrong. Historically speaking, Cyrus's father was a Persian, and his mother was a Mede, and he was given two different names because of that. And you might think, okay, hey, that's, that's a little bit silly, but haven't, hasn't everyone in the story so far had two different names? The Jewish names, and then they were given Babylonian names, and they were referred to sometimes by their Jewish name, sometimes by their Babylonian name, depending on the context. And the argument that scholars make of why Daniel refers to Darius here is because it's specifically the Medo Empire that Jeremiah prophesies will take over Babylon. And so scholars talk about how Daniel's trying to do something. He's trying to historically show us something so that the Jews see it and go, Oh, I think think freedom is on the horizon here. I think we're going to be brought out of because this Medo-Persian rule is not going to be very long. The main argument is or 628, right? So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. If You really get really nerdy now and get into the linguistic point of view. Scholars point out that it is just as likely that we should translate this as Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so there's been an interpretive move done in no matter what translation of the Bible you have. And some translate that the way that I just read it versus the way that you read it maybe in the ESV or the NIV. And so, that's all the historical context simply to say this. I don't want to avoid difficult and uncertain things. I want to make sure that we study hard and that we realize that there are ways to harmonize these things and we don't just have to reject things based on some evidence that was not known. And Belshazzar becomes that perfect example, As many scholars, many linguists, many cultural experts went, Daniel is not accurate because Belshazzar never ruled until the last 50 years when almost all of them have flipped and said, oh, we've uncovered new information. He did. The Bible's actually correct. And so I just want us to realize that even though there's some difficulty sometimes and even though it's not always 100% clear is we can trust the God of the scriptures who has written down this for us and that the further we go into history, or or, I should say, the further we go away from that history, the more we'll learn about it and we'll end up at this place. So, sorry for the long history lesson. I just want us to be real clear that if you go home and you read something about, well, who is Cyrus and who is Darius, this doesn't add up, is by all means, do some study. Dig deep, uh, because there's a lot to learn there, and it's really, really interesting. So, let's read together uh, chapter 6. We're going to read the whole thing. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Sorry, let me just clarify real quick. Don't get hung up on which of those views that you want to hold to because the point of the text has nothing to do with those views. I just wanted to clarify that so that we have a starting place. So the point of the text will be something very different. Verse 2, And over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the kingdom and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Darius knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signets of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought, were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces." Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you in a decree. Sorry, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. It's a pretty incredible chapter in a lot of ways. But I hope what it has done as we've read that is it's reminded you of another chapter in another story. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's so many parallels between these two, but there's some significant differences that we do want to look at. We'll get there as we go We've been wondering, as you kind of end at the last bit of chapter 5, is now that a new empire is going to be taken, Daniel's been essentially placed as the head of all of Babylon because Belshazzar and Nabonidus both were killed. And so we're wondering, well, what's going to happen here? Is is God going to continue to give grace and mercy to Daniel? And, and again, what's the theme? The sovereignty of God. He is in control. What we see is exile and what we see is, God, why would you do this? And how are you going to rescue them from this? And God goes, don't worry, i got a plan. I'm at work. And even though this Babylonian empire is over, even though Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and it seemed like things were going well and then Belshazzar came and it all fell apart again, is, is don't worry. And you actually see that in the text here is that Darius actually looks very fondly on Daniel. Darius cares for him immensely. And that's one of the big differences between chapter 3 and chapter 6, because at the beginning of it, the same thing happens. Jealousy of people because they do not like the fact that a Jewish exile is in a position of leadership. So in chapter 3, they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they appear to his own vanity and they go, man, we should like create the statue and then we'll all worship them. And they knew full well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're not going to do that. And then they went to him and went, oh, you remember when you made the statue? And Well, there's three guys, and, and they point out, the same as they point out about Daniel here, there was exiles from Judah. Right? They're like making a stink about this, basically saying to the king, you have elevated these people that are not our people. And they worship a different God. And you, this is your own fault, king. There's, there's a lot of condescension in, in the way they say these things. But so they, the, in chapter 3, they say, "King Nebuchadnezzar, they will not fall down and worship you. And he just flips off the handle, right? He can't handle it, and he's rageful and angry and goes to immediately throw them in the furnace to kill them. But here in chapter 6, the big difference is what? Darius has no desire to kill Daniel. So the king in chapter 3 against the God of Israel, against the Jewish people, against anything, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was really self-absorbed at that point in his life. And here we don't see that from Darius. In fact, you see a complete opposite thing. You see him try to rescue him even though he knows he can't. Getting ahead of myself here. Notice in verse 3 something very interesting that has been mentioned over and over and over. Because no matter who the king is, they notice this. This Daniel became distinguished above all the other prison satraps because why? What does it say? Is it back there? Oh, no. Okay. What does it say? Does that not sound familiar? Why was Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego promoted in the first place in the very beginning? Because an excellent spirit, wisdom, and knowledge, and the power of the gods was in them. That's how they view that. And then we see that again in Belshazzar's time, even though Daniel's no longer serving the king, the queen mother comes out and goes, there's this Daniel who's an exile of Judah and an excellent spirit is within him. And we see this again now. And so here's the first thing that we got to know about Daniel is Daniel was a man of character and a man of integrity. That's huge. Daniel is, is exemplifying to us Right now, here, what it means to live as a Christian in an exile. Isn't Isn't that how Peter refers to all the people of Jesus that are living on the earth? As exiles in a foreign land? We live among people that don't want to worship God, that don't want to follow God, and parts of the world are infringing upon that into the place where you have no legal right to worship God while they might be living at home in their home country, they're exiles in the sense that they're not even allowed to worship the one true God. So we learn from this, is what, is what should it look like? How should I live as a Christian in a more increasingly secular world like Daniel? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment here. But as I was thinking about Daniel, and it's interesting because I was having a meeting with my friend Daniel, and, and we were talking about some things in this verse about Daniel. Maybe not you, but, but maybe you too, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in First Peter chapter 2, this verse just kept coming back to me after, after I met with my friend and then after I was studying this, and it says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's how we're supposed to live. It goes on in chapter 3 to basically say this, that when they accuse you, they're going to be put to shame because your actions prove differently. That's what we see about Daniel here is, is they get jealous about whether it's an economic issue or whether it's about an ethnicity issue with him being Jewish, probably a combination of both, is Daniel gets elevated to this place and they're like, no, we cannot have him above us. We've got to find something bad about him. Now Let me just ask you this. Somebody worked real hard to dig up the skeletons in your closet. How long would it take? Don't answer that. I just want you to think that. Right? Is, I mean, just, just think of the political landscape that we live in right now. Like there is no good candidate ever. Right? Because somewhere in our history we have done or said things that we deeply regret or that we've completely changed our views on and we are ashamed that we ever said or did those things. Well, here they're trying to find anything they can about Daniel, and what does it say? Nothing could be found unless we're going to attack him about the faithfulness that he has to his God. Could you have a better thing said of anybody ever? He is so faithful, the only way we're going to get him is is this, oh, he prays to his God unceasingly. That's our way in. Now, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, they try to trick the king. It's not for, their benefit, or it's not for the benefit of the kingdom, right? They, they're calling it like political unification. Darius, if you put this thing up, that all requests of anything have to go through you, then you will know everything that's happening in your kingdom, right? They're appealing to his kind of sense of like, well, yeah, it'd be good to have a unified kingdom and to know where everyone's at. And so, so this is good. This is great. But of course, their motives are simply this. We've got to get Daniel out of here. And any way to do it will work. And in fact, let's do it only 30 days so that we don't actually have to change anything about what we do. We'll just be elevated and at the end of those 30 days, we can live as corruptly and however we want. That's the essentially what's going on here. So they all gather together and they say to the king, right? And, and you can just see the like passive aggressiveness in, in their words. is like, you know, let's make this rule. This would be a really good rule. Oh, and by the way, we know that according to the laws and the Medes and the Persians, you can't change it. So, so, right, because they're planning. When Daniel does this, and we know you like Daniel, but when Daniel does this, you can't change your mind. He's done. Like that's, it, it, it's, it's written very clearly for us to see their motives and obviously Darius learns their motives and, and punishes them at the end of the chapter accordingly. But let's get to verse 10 here because this is, this is where this significant question that I asked about how do we live as exiles in a foreign land? How do we live in an increasingly secular culture and be a Christian? This has been a hot topic of conversation for the last two years, hasn't it? Is when should we obey authority and when should we not? When should we, when should we civilly disobey? What, where's that line and how do we deal with that? Well, our church, we decided certain lines hadn't been crossed and so we honored our authorities and yet worshiped God freely. Now, I'm not, going to argue about where that line should be as much as I want to show that Daniel points something out for us. He learns that this document and injunction has been signed stating he is not permitted to pray to his God. He views that as a direct attack against his responsibility, not right, but responsibility to cry out to the one true God. So it says when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chambers, opened towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees and he prayed three times a day. And depending on our specific view of, of, you know, authority and all these things, we can read into the text that which isn't there. Some people want to argue that there's kind of this belligerent approach to what Daniel is doing, that he's defying his king, he's defying the government. But if you read to the end of verse 10, you see that he's not doing Because, what does the last few words of verse 10 say? As he had previously done, this is what he did. It's not as though he walked out into the middle of the courtyard and went, I'm going to pray to my God and there's nothing you can do. That wasn't his attitude. In fact, it says he went and gave thanks to God. And as soon as we do a little bit of digging, we realize that it wasn't like he walked out to the balcony of his, of his you know, loft apartment and you know kneeled right on the edge and then prayed so that everybody could see him. As if you understand the context, or, or, or sorry, the, how the houses worked at that point, is this was an upper room where he had windows open, but he was set back. And the only way for people to see that he was praying to God daily is by trying to trap him. So this is not about Daniel being belligerent. This is about Daniel continuing to be faithful and to continue to say, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to do what's right, no matter what it costs me. But remember what Jesus said is, when you pray, don't go out into the street corner. Make lofty appeals in front of everybody because your motivation's totally wrong then. And I think that's been the biggest challenge and what's caused my heart the most grief over the last two years is sometimes people have been doing what's right but with completely impure motives. I'm going to show the government they can't do anything to me. Is that worship to God? Now again, I don't want to get into the fight of all of that and I'm not trying to convince you of where you should land on that. All I'm trying to say is Daniel is showing us that is an exile in a foreign land who has been permitted denied permission to worship his God, he goes, I will still do what is right. But he never disrespects the king. And I think that's important. Stephen Miller wrote it this way. Two facts concerning Daniel's religious life are evident here. First, Daniel's religious convictions were not hidden The old prophet was not a secret disciple, but a man who was not ashamed to let others know that his allegiance was to the God of Israel. That's the reason why he's in trouble in the first place. Everybody knows that he will worship the one true God. Second, Daniel's commitment was such that he would not compromise even in the face of punishment or death. This again should remind us back to 3.18 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say what to the king? I focused like that whole Sunday morning on this verse. Even if Right? Is Our God is able to save us from that fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to fall down and worship. No matter the cost, Daniel is doing the same thing here. No matter if I get thrown into that lion's den, I will stand up for what's right and what's true and what's God-honoring. Man, does that speak loudly to us in our culture, I think. Are we going to compromise convictions? Are we going to compromise what the Word of God says because it's popular? Because if we make a certain stand, we're going to get ostracized, whatever it might be. We're going to read and we're going to study God's Word and we're going to come to conclusion based on what God says is right, not what culture says is right. And according to what Jesus has told us, is we're going to get further and further and further removed from the normal cultural practices of our world. And I think for many of us, that's difficult because for the most part, we've had as much religious freedom as anybody at any time, at any point in history. But there are many in the world that don't have that. There are many in the world that are doing exactly what Daniel does, where they gather together in a little apartment somewhere, and they show up 30 minutes apart in a small group of 20 people, and so church doesn't even start for three hours before they get there because they want to worship because they want to do what's right and true, and they face imprisonment, they face loss of job, they face unimaginable horrors that we in this part of the world know nothing about. But unfortunately, those things are coming at some point. They've come to every culture at every time in every part of the world. We've lived with unprecedented religious freedom. Praise the Lord for that. But let's not just think that we deserve that. Let's understand that as the world changes, let's be like Daniel in this. So they spy on Daniel. They see what has happened. Um, he is praying, and they go, okay, let's go tell the king. We're going to show him that, uh, that he's going to have to kill Daniel. But, but look how they say it, right? It's the same as in chapter 3. They kind of beat around the bush a little bit. Like, did you not, this is verse 12, did you not sign an injunction? king, have you forgotten? Right? Like, this is probably days later, maybe even one day later. Did you not sign this thing, and, and anyone who was going to, you know, pray to their their god rather than you or to you, uh, they're going to be thrown into the lion's den, right? Isn't that what happened? Yes, this thing stands fast, right? And then, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, he pays no attention to you, O oh king, or the injunctions you have signed. He makes the petition three times a day. Notice what he's doing, or what they're doing about Daniel. They're saying, he's a threat to you, king. He's a threat. He's a he's he's from the nation of the, the, Israel. Like they're Jewish people, they're never gonna follow after you. That he pays no attention to you at all. One of the commentators I read said ironically, what we're seeing right in that verse is that they're claiming Daniel as a threat, but it's actually these other men that are the threat because they can't handle the fact that somebody with good integrity is ruling ahead of them. And so they're after their own motives. They're after their own well-being, not the well-being of the kingdom. So anyway, they've trapped him and it says the king then was distressed and he set his mind to deliver Daniel and he worked the entire day to try and rescue him. And then again, those nosy people come along and go, oh, remember, sundown. Like, that's it. You can't rescue him. He's dead. He has to be killed. You yourself said this. And here's the big difference, right? And we already mentioned this, but it goes further between Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. Nebuchadnezzar is willing to sacrifice his own men as they carry Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the furnace, right? They, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live. His own men die in that process. Here, Darius doesn't want to kill his Uh, doesn't want to kill Daniel and does everything he can to free him. And this is the thing. You and I, as ambassadors of Christ, can live in such a way that whether the world agrees or disagrees with us, whether they hate us or love us, is they can know that we stand for something different. Let me just say it this way. The world is watching you. And they're probably looking for you more to screw up and make a mistake and have to repent of those things. Uh, and that might seem intimidating, but let's flip it the other way around. Is they're watching you to make a mistake? So let's live for Christ and exalt Christ and show people who Jesus is. Let's be humble in that and let's confess when we make mistakes. Let's repent of the wrongs that we've done. Let's show them we should have done better. Well, Daniel has been doing this because look what the king says. He realizes he has to kill him, but he, cries, he says to him in 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, I don't know, right? Like, the, the response Darius makes kind of in the end of this chapter seems to indicate that he believes in this one true God. But we said that about Nebuchadnezzar the first few times as well, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't willing to only worship the one true God. And so we're not sure about Darius here in this point, but what he does believe is, Daniel, you serve that God continually, and just maybe that God is able to save you from this. Right? Like, whether he believes or not, it's not clear, but he goes as far as to say this, and then he goes and he fasts and he can't sleep. His care and his concern for Daniel is far more than the care and the concern for anybody else in his kingdom. God's at work. God's at work in the life of Daniel. Even though in Daniel's situation, I am now about to be thrown into a lion's den. I'm going to be killed. And God goes, don't worry. I got plans. I got purposes for you. And so in 19, we see further is that as soon as Darius wakes up, he rips down to go figure out what's happened, and he calls out and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? That's not someone who's just consigned to the fact that Daniel died last night. That's someone who's like, there's a chance. It sounds to me like someone who's seeking and searching and acknowledging That one God, that Yahweh that they serve, maybe he is powerful enough. And so this is the point for us in our lives is as we go through challenge and difficulty and crisis and grief and loss and all of these things, we have a great opportunity to point other people to Jesus. That we trust God in the midst of heartache, in the midst of hurt. Back to 3.18, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, We're still going to follow after him, right? The the point of the story is not that if you haven't done anything wrong, that nothing bad will happen to you. That's sometimes the overly Sunday school lesson that we try and draw out of it, which is really a wrong interpretation. The point of the story is that God is in control, and that God is able to save, and sometimes he does save. It's a great article for you on Desiring God Ministries, uh, and they point out that Jesus only ever raised three people from the dead, and there was many people that he let stay in the grave. So if Jesus came only to heal the sick, then he didn't do a very good job. It's actually a phenomenal article. It talks to us about when when God doesn't do what we hope he's going to do. When God doesn't just rescue us. I encourage you to just Google that article. It'll be worth your time. So he calls out, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? And notice again Daniel's character. Verse 21, how does he respond? Oh, king, live forever. He offers him respect and honor, even though you're the one that just threw me into this lion's den and you put your ring on the signet saying, this is your death sentence, essentially. What does Daniel know? King, you might think you're in control, but I serve the one true living God, and he's in control, not you. And he may have allowed you to throw me in this lion's den, but I will trust God no matter the outcome. And so Daniel says, God sent his angel, and I sat there, and their mouths were shut, and clearly their claws were not out. And it's written the same way as in chapter 3 when they take the three friends out of the furnace and they say there's no harm found on them. It's talking about God's totality of power. He didn't just save him. He didn't even let him be harmed. But let me just promise you this. Next week when Shailen Smong and I are on our safari and a lion tries to jump in the jeep, right, like that will be the most, hopefully that doesn't happen. The first time when we went down, the first encounter that Shayla and I had with the lion, we're in this little Volkswagen rabbit. I've probably told this story. Little tiny car. And the lion walks up beside the window and his head is higher than I am in the car. And I never realized how big a wild lion was until that moment. And I was very scared. For Daniel to sit in that lion's den with multiple lions who are clearly hungry enough that they're about to kill everybody else, to see the power of God going, no, you don't get to do anything to Daniel. What an amazing experience. And I think sometimes we long for God, would you, would you do some crazy miracle so that I can see how powerful you are? And God usually says something like this, just read the Bible. How many times have I done it? How many times do I have to do it? I think we often say we want the miracle to happen, but we really don't want to be put in the situation where the miracle has to happen. We want, you know, the best of both worlds. God, could you put me in a situation where nothing actually bad is going to happen, but it looks like something bad is going to happen, so then I have to trust you, but I'll know nothing bad is going to happen. That's not trust and faith, right? That's, I just, I just want an experience like I read here. We need to understand this is written for us about Daniel doesn't mean that God's always going to deliver us in miraculous ways, but it means that he might. So we hold on to that. And then when it doesn't happen the way that we expect, we go, God, you are sovereign. You are in control. I'm going to continue to be a man or a woman of integrity and follow you no matter what the outcome is. Because that's what we see the example of Daniel and his friends here. They will follow God to the end. The book of Hebrews talks a great deal about persevering to the end and showing that we will trust a God even when we don't understand him. And I've argued this before, but I think it's very, very good for us to trust a God that we can't understand because if we could understand him, he wouldn't be God and we wouldn't need him. His ways are better than my ways. So we see that. Commentator Ian Duguid says this, Humanly speaking, Daniel was left all alone to face his fate. Yet Darius' last words to Daniel point to a higher source of help. May you remember that this week and next week, and the next crisis that you face, and the next challenge that you have to endure. Humanly speaking, there may seem like there's no hope. What a great opportunity for us to live for Jesus. What a great opportunity for the way in which we act to exalt Christ and to show other people we will serve God, even if. We're not going to do the Sunday school thing and ignore what happens at the end here, though. Darius is very, very angry, he knows he's been manipulated. He knows this other group of of leaders have tried to usurp his power. And he probably responds, well, not probably, he does respond a little too disproportionately, right? And he takes all of them and he says, you think that you can usurp, that you can manipulate, that you can live with your own agenda at heart and not the kingdom's? Well, I'm going to show you that you can't. And they get thrown into the lion's den. And I kind of wonder... I'm reading between the lines here, and I'm not making any speculations as much as just wondering in my own mind. I wonder if when they're thrown in, too, that they're going, maybe the lions won't kill us. They didn't kill Daniel. Or maybe they're wondering, Daniel's God rescued them. We have no hope. I don't know. But what we do see happen is even, uh, it's obviously hyperbole. It's not a literal statement, but before they even reached the bottom of the pit, they were all... Killed and their bones were crushed. So I just want to read again Darius' statement about God. And we don't know, we're going to find out as we read further. He clearly has a soft spot for the Jewish people and this one true God. We don't know exactly how far he takes that. But really this should be our hope that as we live in a, in a more and more secular world that people will see our actions and this is how they'll respond. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be, sorry, and, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. Let me bring it to the New Testament and let me just end by giving something very similar that Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May you remember as you face whatever unjust, unfair Uncertain situation has happened to you That your hope is not in this world and your hope is not in rescue right now Your hope is that there's a savior and his name was jesus christ And he came to the earth to rescue us from spiritual darkness So that when we die and everybody will That we have hope for eternity and that we get to go live with jesus for forever No more hurt no more pain no more sadness no more crying no more anything That's negative. Why? Because God is in control. Because God had a plan. So may we be faithful the same way as Daniel and say it doesn't matter what the obstacle is in front of me. I'm going to be a man or a woman of integrity and live for God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. And and we've briefly gone through it. And there's so much more that we could talk about and spend time here. But, But I just pray that as we consider these things, that as we examine our own hearts and our own lives, and as we think about our own difficulties that we're facing right now, may we not be flippant like a wave tossed in the ocean, but may we be steadfast and may we know that we will trust you no matter what, even when it's hard. That doesn't mean that everything's just always going to be better doesn't mean we won't have disappointment and heartache and pain, but it does mean that we know those things are temporary. And we know that you have plans and purpose far beyond what we can understand. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to remember the world has nothing to offer us because you're the one in control. So God, as we go from this place today, I am I plead with you. Give each of us attitudes that declare that we love Jesus Christ so that the world around us, our coworkers, our family, our friends, those that we interact with, that they see something unique and different in us and they go, I, I need that. I don't even know what it is, but I need it. And give us great opportunities to share with people about who Jesus is and why we have hope. God, we love you. Would you be at work in our hearts this week in a way that we cannot ignore? And as we've learned in this text, as it points forward to Jesus, may we never take for granted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, the hope that he has given us that we will be with him one day if we confess him as Lord and Savior. Go with us now. Amen.